Namaste. Shobindu describes the Indian culture as a vast cathedral in which still though the cathedral is you know now some places you see there is something which is broken another place something is being built up yet still the worship is offered to the unseen eternal so what really this cathedral is we can take a little example of savitri bhavan because indian culture and its foundations are it includes it's it's like a vast compendium of the absolute it's not just one little truth one little book one little finding one little discovery it takes into account the entire totality of human existence and what is beyond it so let me start with the example of savitri bhavan so if somebody asks what is savitri bhavan well you may describe the entire um, geography of the savitri bhavan all the buildings inside it and each of it is savitri bhavan and yet there is something as savitri bhavan which escapes this entire totality of structure and superstructure because as far as the physical body is concerned new structures may yet come up and uh, maybe old structures may undergo modification but savitri bhavan is the spirit of savitri bhavan what has gone inside it as an idea but if we go still further the idea of savitri bhavan has its foundations in the spirit of oroville and if we go still deeper the spirit of oroville comes from the divine mother and if we go still further we'll see that the divine mother is the manifestation the incarnation the advent of the supreme shakti so when we indian thought penetrated things deeper and deeper first to find the foundation and they made many bold interesting declarations which we'll speak about but first we must understand that it it was built on the solid ground or solid foundation of ekamevidyutyam there is but one reality without a second this is one of the most important discoveries and this is important because the other day i was listening to some there's roadside philosophies and somebody was raising this question what is bhartiyata tell me what is the dress of a bhartiya what is the food habit of a bhartiya so obviously this is the most external way of trying to understand it's true we don't have one dress one food <laughs> culture we don't have one marker but that is the strength but one thing is there at the foundation of Uh, what can be called as indianness or bhartiyata that there is one reality without a second this is what made indian thought so vast and catholic and to complement it it also said there is one without a second but the wise give it different names ekam sad vipra bahuda vadanti now this is a complementary thing because when many religions say there is one reality many cultures would say that but in the mind it gets translated into there is one god but that is my god or that is my conception of god or that is my uh, guru my prophet my whoever but indian thought had the boldness to declare there is one reality the wise call it by different names and then it went on further there are multiple approaches through which we can arrive at this one reality 
so this immediately you see the foundation of this uh, wonderful uh, something which we call as indian culture this this not a thought this not a conception but it's based on the experience and realizations of the rishi that's why people often ask about india what is india and it's so beautiful if you go back recently someone was asking me that nation is born only 200 300 years back so what is the reality of the nation well in india it was not you the word nation was not used in initially we see india is formed as a spiritual reality so we have the story of sati where all the 50 um, 51 parts of sati are scattered all over the if you if you draw them together you have the map then you have a geographical way of understanding ganga is yamuna is kaveri so right from the beginning from the himalayas there is a beautiful shloka which describes the geography of india meaning thereby the geography is not just a land mass but a living reality and then slowly and slowly we come to what really is an indian who is an indian so an indian is in ancient times the it was you know there were no passports people could travel across the borders but the sense of bhartiyata even before the name bharat came it was called aryavart so it was the land of the aryas and of course we know the whole history and i am not going into it how it got distorted into people who invaded from further north but all that has been debunked thoroughly genetically um, geographically archaeologically so i am not going into it it's a separate subject there was nothing like an aryan invasion it was a myth created only to create a divide within india and to justify that well aryans had invaded so we have also invaded so what the big deal but aryan was a psychological type so at third level they said who is who is really an indian what is the true identity they didn't have the word indian so he was an aryan a psychological type of humanity who was as i was just mentioning we are all farmers who was a farmer because he was tilling the soil of his nature to bring out um, the harvest of plenty out of what out of the divine seed which is sown within this very body this kshetra and the aryan was also a warrior because he was fighting all that is dark all that is obscure all that is false he is a warrior he doesn't accept uh, i mean things which are perverse things which are right because he wants this world to grow beautiful see people often say what is there let live let live everything is all okay but for the aryan this world is sacred he wants beauty to manifest so wherever there is ugliness whether in it, it is in his own thoughts and feelings first of all this so that's how he becomes a swarat he must conquer it he must remove it wherever there is smallness there are such beautiful verses in the upanishad and one of them in the isha upanishad this is oh agni you who makes the crooked straight he doesn't accept crookedness tube deception and that whole side was called as anarya there is an aryan way of life where you live for beauty for truth for light for harmony based on truth for the greater sense of unity where there is no one way of living but many ways but all of them leading towards a great consummation so this was the aryan type which was a psychological type so we see several layers through which india was being formed because all creation starts from above and then goes downwards like the ashwatthama tree that's how indian thought conceived creation 
the geographical or the political unit came much later. There is no doubt about it. But that's the way things should be formed. Not that we have a house, just imagine if Savitri Bhavan, somebody said, we should have something here very nice, built a very multi-storied house and they said, what should we do? Okay, let's have Savitri Bhavan. Now that's not how things should be. So it starts with the conception of the world and that conception is that it's very beautiful. Uh, one of the boldest um, conceptions based on experience that this world is not a chance, not an accident, not a random phenomena. There is within it a divinity which is imminent in every particle of existence. So God dwells within it. Doesn't matter what we call, you know, God. By God, we can say the perfection. And because that perfection, divine perfection, that divine state, that divine origin is there within it, therefore this world is meant to manifest the divine who is within. So not only is is the divine present in each particle of existence, there is something called as the manifestation of the divine which is an ongoing process. That's what is called as Leela. So Leela is simply that it is a progressive manifestation of the divine which is happening in this universe. So this world is, as Shobindra says in Savitri, God fulfilled in outwardness. So therefore they saw in this vast galaxy also God, Virat. They saw in the inner world teeming with thoughts and feelings and impulses also God, Hiranyagarbha. And there was something beyond, Pragya. So all these are different ways. So God was not just cut off out there up in heaven, but God who is imminent in each particle of creation. But then it also made a second conception that all that is happening within the universe, not only the divine is within it, it is surrounded by the divine. Now this may sound, it's okay, very nice thought that you know everything is surrounded by the divine. But it, it makes something very interesting that if the circle and circumference of this creation, not only its core, but also the circumference is the divine, meaning thereby that whichever path human beings will take, eventually they will end up with the divine. How it will happen? That's the mystery. So the Vedas describe this world as uh, Diti surrounded by Aditi. Darkness surrounded by light. So that's why, you know, it, it answers one of the uh, problems of physics, if people call it a problem, in what is space expanding. So it can be understood if we say that there is a finite surrounded by infinite. Then it's okay, you know, there is an infinite into which it can expand. It can expand endlessly. Or it can begin to contract. So that's where we had a conception of the finite surrounded by the infinite. So this is how they conceived. And as I say, it's not a conception based on experience. And they made a third wonderful uh, truth or revelation. First is, God is in all. Meaning thereby, none of us is condemned forever. We are not damned into some dark state. All of us, regardless, the wicked, the evil doer, all of them, ultimately, ultimately, have a divine destiny. Why? Because the divine is hidden inside. This clay, this dust, this grain of sand has a divine destiny. Because divine is hidden inside. This material body, corporeal body, has a divine destiny because divine is hidden inside. And as I said, any which way we go, up, down, which, which was called in, in the 
Vedic lore as the northern path, Uttarayan and the southern path, Dakshinayan. It got, you know, of course we use these terms in a different way, the winter and the summer solstice from 22nd December. But Uttarayan meant the upward path of ascension. It had nothing to do with north and south. But upward path of ascension. But equally if you take the Dakshinayan, the downward path of gravitation, eventually you will hit the infinite. That's how we see in Indian fables that whichever path, even the greatest of Asura, eventually gets dissolved in the divine because this is the inevitable conclusion of this truth. And the third, even bolder conception is that not only God is within, not only God is uh, all around, but also all, all, all is God. This is very bold. Atme Vabhud Vijanata. Now this is very difficult for human mind to conceive. So we can put it like this, that all is God, but it's God in the becoming. Each particle is God in the becoming. So not only is he inside, he is constantly becoming. That's why we see in the Gita, these three layers, Purushottama, the Akshar and the Sharobhav. So this constant becoming is nothing else but the divine expressing himself, bringing out new forms for manifestation, taking away what is no more necessary. And that's this tussle in creation, the evolutionary struggle, because God is perpetually becoming. So he is moving towards the future. And there are forms which are not ready to move towards the future. And therefore they inevitably collapse. There are forms that collapse. Consciousness cannot be destroyed. Energy cannot be destroyed. So he's constantly moving forward because in the becoming itself there is the divine. He's flowing in it, he's flowing with it, and every particle is pregnant with possibility, divine possibility. So this was another bold conception that they made. So this spirituality, as Shobinda says, is the master key of India. If you want to understand India, we have to really go to its original spiritual sense with which the Indian thought saw and conceived this world. So this world as the Leela of the Divine who is constantly bringing out new forms. And then we see that there are some other things that came into play, some other words, thoughts, and we'll just speak a little bit about that. Then came the idea of Maya. So what is Maya? Maya is nothing but one, that power which gives finite forms to the infinite. That's all that Maya means. Later on, some people picked it up and said form is... Um, illusion, but form and formless are all the time coexisting. Love exists in a formless state, but it takes a form. Personalized, individualized. Bliss exists in an impersonal, universal state, but it takes a personalized form. And these forms must become better and better. If we really look at life, can we say that a worm doesn't have love? It has love. It has a most elementary, rudimentary form of love. Can we say stones don't have love? They have love. That's what the, the power that binds the atoms together. So when we look at it like that, systems of worlds, at each level, the same forces are manifesting. But through evolution, they become better and better. Forms become more and more capable. Animals also express love. But in human beings, love takes a humanized turn. And as we grow, the same power, Shivinda puts it beautifully in Savitri, all our earth starts from the mud and ends in the sky. And love that was once an animal's 
wants, then a sweet madness in the rapturous heart, then an ardent comradeship in the mind becomes a spiritual wide yearning space. So it is how they saw that forms have to, forms were dwelling places of the Lord. Who can conceive such a vast way of looking at what today we call as temples, churches, gurudwaras and mosques? This is the temple. Each cell is a temple. Mother takes it to that extent. Each cell is a temple of the Lord. And from there sprang ways of life. Because if this body is the temple, so what do we do with the temple? We keep it clean. We don't fill it with alcohol and we don't, you know, uh, so, if this is the temple, Manushitanu Ashritam, as the Gita says, there are ways of life that sprang from this thought. And that those ways of life we were, which were consistent with this profound truth, that was called as Dharma. So, Dharma is something very interesting. Sanatana Dharma. So, one is, Dharma has three connotations. This is the second beautiful aspect of Indian thought. One, Dharma. What is it that holds creation? So often I ask people, what do you feel is your true identity? You know, recently people were saying, there is always this uh, struggle for identity. But what identity? Outer identity. I wear a certain kind of dress. I use a, eat a certain kind of food. I have a certain outer way of life. Therefore, I must have a separate state. But Indian thought never conceived that as an identity. That is an instrument. What is the identity? Identity is the deep spiritual self. Brahman. Divine, call it whatever, it doesn't matter. So, first aspect of dharma is dharan, what holds this creation. The moment I say that, well, creation is somehow, you know, it is desire that is expressing at creation, then I am saying in a sense that the dharma is that there is desire at the root of creation. That is how many understand, that's how many people live their life. Just to fulfill their desires. Why? Because if desire is at the root of creation, it is but natural. But Indian thought says, delight is at the root of creation. Anandam Brahmeti. But this, it does not negate the other layers. It only says, come higher and higher, deeper and deeper, then you will see the original cause. So, we can take an example, but first that little story where this is beautifully described. The disciple goes to the Guru and says, uh, tell me about Brahman or that highest knowledge. Disciples, uh, the Guru says, you, you think you reflect, meditate. Nothing can be taught. All is inside you. You reflect and come out with your answer. So after some time, the disciple says, oh, I have realized, Annam Brahmeti. Matter is Brahman. So the Guru does not say nonsense. He says, yeah, okay, okay. Kindergarten cleared. Reflect more. Now for the primary section, he comes back and says, after one year of meditation, he says, Pranam Brahmeti, this world is moved by a life energy. So he says, okay, good, at least we have reached from matter to energy, <laughs> one step forward. <laughs> you have cleared your primary, come back for higher secondary. So he goes back and says, Mano Brahmeti, it is thought so everything is a thought. You look at the mountain, it's a thought of God. You look at the river, it's a thought of God. So he starts seeing things like that. So he says that there is a thought which has gone in creation. It is something like, I think, therefore I am. So he says, okay, <laughs> higher secondary gone, but now you have to go to the next level. Do your 
graduation and post-graduation, he comes back after some time and says, Vijnanam Brahmeti. Behind all these thoughts and ideas, which are like rays of the sun, there is a still greater reality, which has arranged them in space and time. These are not chaotic thoughts. So these thoughts are ordered. See, that's how the supermind is described. It arranges different forces which are emerging out of it. It puts them in order through the power of Ritchit. That is the way things should be arranged. So that's how it is. Satyameva Jayate Nan Ritam. Rit is when things are arranged according to the law of truth. Anrit is when they are disturbed. They are not in accordance with the law of truth. So there is a constant reshuffling going on. So why it happens, that's a different story altogether. We can, we, we can touch upon that. So Vikyana Brahmati, he says, well, you have cleared all your uh, levels, but I can't give you a certificate. You have to come up with one more answer. So he reflects and then he comes and says, Anandam Brahmati. Raso Vaisaha. It's all an unfolding of Ananda. You see, if you look at an ocean, so we, we'll, we, can, we may say, why is the ocean uh, forming waves? So we can explain it from the laws of physics. Then you can still go further and say, no, there is the energy transaction which is taking place. <laughs> then you go deeper and enter into a little bit um, nonsensible consciousness aspect and speak of it as thought, idea, conception. You go still further and say it's not just this ocean but ocean connected with the mountain, the river, the air and you enter into that Vigyan aspect and then you say ultimately ocean for its own delight it is unfolding. Why should there be a cause? So this unfolding of the delight in creation is the delight is the original truth. But then the Indian thought says to reach this delight there are gradations of this and there are actions and activities which take us away from the delight and we slip towards what modern science would call as depression. You see, it is very interesting, you will find answer to everything there if you really reflect upon it. For instance, the very first sloka of the Isha Upanishad says, Isha Vasyam idam sarvam yat kincha jagatyam jagat. Tena tyaktena bhunjita magrida kasasvidhanam. Now you see, it says this gives the secret of delight. Secret of delight is renunciation. Sounds very strange. Because we are taught to possess, then I'll have joy. It says, yes, if you possess, you will have pleasure. And it will invariably lead to pain, which is a blessing. Otherwise, you thought this pleasure is delight. So pleasure is snatched away. You have pain. So you seek a greater pleasure. Till you realize, no, no, not pleasure. So you graduate into the joy. Then one graduates or post-graduates into felicity. Then you go still further and ultimately you discover the delight. So we can find just on this phrase so many answers. Why do you want to possess something as if it is your own? It all belongs to the Lord. So delight, to have that delight we must grow vast. And we grow vast when we discover this one which is behind everything. So dharma and adharma had nothing to do with external activities. They had to do with the state of consciousness which is within it. How can Duryodhana's actions be adharma and Bhima's dharma? That would be the question that modern mind raises. In fact, Dhritarashtra and Gandhari raise this question. 
that look at Bhima, he killed hundred sons. And she says, Gandhari says, Bhim, you could have left at least one. And Bhima's answer, even if you had two hundred, I would kill them all. Sounds very strange. But Bhima knows that every son of Gandhari of this kind, he would stand for a dharma and he has to be removed. So it was based on a different kind of logic that this world must be saved. Shubhinda says that Krishna saved India through the battle of Kurukshetra. So while Ahinsa is Paramo Dharma, leave aside about, you know, defense. Paramo, the ultimate, highest Dharma. But when you are having a passage, you have to understand that there is a struggle between light and darkness. Darkness is also divine in the past. What we call today's darkness was necessary at a stage of evolution. There was a stage when desire and life governed by desire was necessary. They were tribes. They lived by like that. But the same thing today, supposing we say that we want to break the world into small tribes. Some people do believe it. So what we are doing? We are going towards retrogression. It is like Shivinder says that it is true that anarchy is the first state and will be the last state of this creation. That is the divine anarchy where each one discovered the divine within. But if you practice it in the middle, it will straight away lead to the devil's den. So this is how the Indian conception of dharma and dharma went. That there is constantly a struggle between this manifestation of the divine, the progressive march of mankind. The Gita puts it very beautifully. Lok Sangraharth which is marching towards a great consummation. Sri Krishna doesn't say what is that consummation. He, he decided that I'll come back as Shurabindu and reveal it. It was too premature on the battlefield of Kurukshetra to give all that jnana. It was not necessary for Arjuna's understanding. That question humanity will raise later and so Sri Krishna comes as Shurabindu and reveals this truth. So mankind is moving. So there is this sense of constant progression and evolution. See, evolution is there in India, both evolution of forms as well as evolution of consciousness. So the evolution of consciousness is there in Vedanta, that you go through several lives and at the end of the um, certain lives, you your soul has evolved enough to realize that Sohamasmi, that I am that, I am portion of the divine. What about the forms? See, Tantra says after so many forms, transiting through so many forms, you get a human form in which you can realize the divine. So there is a mystery of the form. It's not random. Why can't the animal realize the divine? Why is it given to man? So this is where we have the beauty of the form. The same thing we see in the story of Dashavatar. So it saw evolution as a twofold process. One was the inner growth. And the second was the outer growth. But this entails a struggle. Because all growth, evolution entails a struggle between forces that pull us backward and forces that carry us ascending order of light. So in Indian thought you will find several places this idea of struggle between the forces of light and darkness. It is there scattered in different religions. For instance Zoroastrianism. They speak about our Mazda. But in Indian thought it is brought up in its fullness and light and darkness have nothing to do with outer neither skin color nor the way your nose is placed and you know the language you speak it is about inner state so first the uh, Arya fights within and becomes Swarat 
then he wants to extend this empire of the divine into the world and that's where he becomes samrat now this extension is see how everything was based on this um, one truth so this extension was not an expansion it was an extension of dharma now i'll give an example so whenever a king in ancient times went to ex- what would be appear as expand his rajya what was it called it was called as ashwamedha yagya so we have this third beautiful conception other than dharma which is yagya so yagya is to purify and refine so wherever he went this king he brought in the rule of dharma that's what we see in with uh, rama conquering lanka but he is not saying okay now everybody will pay tax to ayodhya he doesn't say that he says vibhishan you are the best person to rule this place you become the king or in kishkindha he doesn't say okay now i rule over the monkey world monkey world will pay taxes to me and all its resources i will use or misuse he doesn't say that he says sugriv you become the king of i uh, of kishkindha and then he comes back to ayodhya see this is the beauty it is an extension of dharma for which he labors and not for uh, an ostentatious empire to amass wealth this is the difference so this conception of yagya means everything has to be purified uplifted because yagya means fire everything must be purified and this conception of yagya went to what extent actually in indian thought yagya is the process and yoga is the result yoga is not a method and yagya is not a method so any energy if you refine and purify from the most material movements to the most inmost movement you will touch the divine because it all comes from the divine any activity any movement there is a line in savitri our smallest parts have room for deepest needs each part in us desires its absolute everything but keep refining keep purifying and that's what evolution is about what is happening to all the energies as new forms emerge and as we grow even in human humanity there is stratification so they saw this evolutionary because of evolutionary progression there were stratifications hierarchies whether we like it or not hierarchies exist in nature even in one species it exists but this hierarchy was not based on wealth and position see hierarchy exists even the where people say that we don't believe in hierarchy but you believe in hierarchy but you only believe that somebody coming out of a mercedes car is a big man or somebody who has z plus security is a big man that was not the hierarchy of indian thought the hierarchy was based on the state of consciousness one who had wisdom was placed on top one who had not the wisdom but who was ready to guard truth and wisdom was placed next so this is how the hierarchy was created above them all was the yogi the rishi so they made use of everything so we have these chatur varna emerging out of that and then there was the conception of chatur not only varna but varna ashram and the four stages of life something amazing conception and if we understand even this like for a child so every stage has its own dharma see dharma was so beautiful it was not like every child is supposed to sit and start uh, you know learning the vedas there were special places for that but the dharma of the child was to uh, learn to focus all his energy in higher and higher pursuit so that was brahmacharya 
He has to learn how to focus his energies towards higher and higher things. And start from the lower and higher and higher. Be it Shastra Vidya, be it Shastra Vidya, be it anything, sciences, physics, chemistry, so that he goes deeper and deeper into a subject till he discovers that greater reality. This power to concentrate on, focus everything on that one pursuit, so much so that you become unmindful of everything else like Arjun. That is Brahmacharya. It is not just about celibacy. Obviously, children, you don't teach that. But this ability to focus all your energies onto one pursuit. So this is how this was the first stage. After that, you must experience life. Grahastha. Graha. Hold. So you become a householder. Why it is necessary? Because unless you have grappled with the forces of life, with the energies of the world, borne their impact, returned what you have to return, gave something to the world, served it as a strong person. There is a beautiful line in Savitri. After you have served this great divided world, after we have served this great divided world, God's bliss and oneness are our inborn right. So it was never a world shunning. They allowed it because Indian thought allowed everything. So, sannyasi was also there because, you know, if you want to take an extreme effort to realize the one individually, it is okay. But that was not the purpose. So, you were a grahast in the second stage. After you had grappled with the world and not succumbed and not developed nirasha and vairagya, then you were qualified for the next stage. That was vanaprast, where you start seeking greater wisdom. And then there was this consummation into moksha. There was no moksha for somebody who has run away from life. So what is moksha? Again, we see this word used in Indian thought so much. Moksha is nothing to do with cutting the cycles of birth and death. That's a later thought. But in the original conception, moksha literally meant freedom from ignorance. What is ignorance? It defined it like this. Ignorance is that I think I am the body, identified with the body. Ignorance is that I am nothing but a desired self and I am meant to fulfill my desires. Ignorance is to believe that my identity is what is stamped from my birth and given on my birth certificate. Ignorance is to believe that I am my thoughts and opinions and viewpoints. So what is knowledge? Knowledge is to discover this base reality, Esha, Dharma, Sanatana, this eternal reality which is within each element of creation and then to live to manifest it in the progressive march of mankind. This was the goal they placed before uh, all of us. So when we look at Indian thought, so moksha was freedom from ignorance. And if we led a life of dharma, it led us towards moksha inevitably. We didn't have to go to a forest to discover moksha. If we led a life of grahastha, but based on dharma, if we led a life of seeker, seeker has his own dharma, so that's how it is described. So dharma was not a do's and don'ts. Dharma was a very vast and for everything there was a dharma. There was a dharma of politics. There is a dharma of the warrior. There is a dharma of the householder. There is a dharma of, you know, even objects. Snake has its own dharma. Tiger is its own dharma. Tiger is following its dharma. So we don't call him a bad uh, tiger as long as he is following his dharma. But if he becomes a man-eater... Then there is, he is transgressing a boundary of nature which nature has created. See, nature has created these uh, jungly jeev in such a way 
that they spontaneously stay away from human beings. It's nature's mechanism. They look into human eyes and they feel stay away. So they will not attack unless you threaten them. So if you threaten them and they attack you, it is understandable. Otherwise, this nature's ways, there is a magic circle. Just as around us, there is a magic circle which doesn't allow us to go beyond into the territory of the gods. So this is how Indian thought conceived. And then we have this system of worlds and gods. So what are these gods? Gods are cosmic managers. For everything there is a god. Who is the god? Well, if you have a, a universe running, cosmos running, you just can't have somebody sitting out there and arbitrarily doing things. He appoints a manager first who is going to run the cosmos. So he is beyond cosmos and yet he is here. So, But the one who manages is Kala, time. And who is sitting on top of the Kala? Mahakali. I like that word more than you know, Mahakal. <laughs> personal. She is the one whose steps will determine the rhythms of time. All the gods have to obey her. But she is dancing on whose breast? Shiva. So you see the hierarchy? There is the Brahman, Shiva, Shivatva, eternal. And then there is the dance of Kali who is changing time. And all the gods have to obey her. So all the gods are cosmic managers. They receive that impulsion of the divine from above and act according to that. And the great gods receive it correctly. But the lesser gods, as they send more and more, they start, you know, it's like when electricity, electrical energy comes from the original, uh, you know, let's say the nuclear station. Uh, by the time it reaches the local transformer, there is a loss. We all know that. And the whole effort is how to minimize this loss. So at each level of transformation, uh, transformers, gods, there is a loss of energy, there is a distortion and what happens is the end result, which is a distorted world. That's why the mother had to work even on the gods because they are in the transmission that is getting distorted. The solution is that man who himself is a god must come in direct contact with the supreme. Now that's a different thought, but basically the gods can't do away with the gods. Whether we like them or not, they are there. <laughs> the only way to do away is like, okay, I want to have a direct connection with the Supreme. That is given to man. But then you can't just say they don't exist. This is what people did, that they are pagans and they destroyed the gods. What happened in the result? You created the division between earth and the beyond. There was God sitting up in heaven and there is this nature, which remained an inexplicable phenomenon. So that's why the gods and the third is the system of worlds. So in Indian thought, it's not just one world. It sounds very nice. One world, one people, too naive, too childish. <laughs> it is a wishful thinking. There are many worlds, system of worlds. And each of these worlds have not just energies, but beings, domains, powers, influences. This is too vast a subject. And they call this lok. Seven loks beyond the material and seven below the material world. Dipping toward the utter inconscient darkness and higher and higher. And then Indian thought saw this world uh, emerging from above downwards. You see, these things are... Amazing, in the sense with great potential to transform our way of life. So what does it mean? The Gita puts it as Ashwat tree. 
the roots of creation are above now people don't understand that's why that what does it mean they must have a little imagination that what is meant by roots of creation it draws sustenance from above and i often give this example of a flower or a tree so ordinarily we will say that the roots of the tree are below but it is is it not true that the tree is coming up drawn by the sun that's where its original replica is that's why shobindu says you can't discover the secret of the lotus by analyzing the mud you must go and discover the heavenly archetype of the lotus the tree is drawn toward that original idea that's why a particular seed grows into a certain tree so the roots are above where there is the original blueprint and upon earth the manifestation is taking place so this is the whole story of you know this is called a top down view of creation is it has tremendous possibilities in terms of our everyday life but i am not touching upon that so this is how they conceived this world and finally i mean there are many other respect but just to uh, very briefly uh, to touch upon it they saw life the soul of man shubhendra describes is a battle it's a battlefield they saw this as kurukshetra before it can become the leela kshetra the krida kshetra of the divine it's meant to become the krida kshetra the kridangan the play of the divine but before that there is kurukshetra so the soul of man as it advances it has to battle against visible and invisible opponents visible because the same forces take human forms and human shape to thwart the plan so always you will find this in indian thought this sense of standing up for what is right and true but this right and true is not an ideology this right and true is the divine manifestation it has nothing to do with i i stand for what i believe in my conception it's not about belief and conception but what is really true and what is true even in the unfolding so the soul of man is a battle in which there are powers that help and powers that thwart so we constantly see reference to the devas and the asuras so just like there are forces that help us advance there are forces that thwart the advance see that's how shirbindo put all his uh, uh, spiritual force behind the alleys because he saw that hitler is not just a meanest thing human being he is a being of falsehood he saw it now somebody else will say what's wrong he is trying to just you know uh, expand his empire <laughs> nations don't exist see this is the problem of nations don't exist theory which takes the round all is one family when nations don't exist if right now we do it a time will come when each nation will be a manifestation of the one world unity but if we do it now you are giving a great chance to hitlers and they are all around so let's not talk about it so um, at every everything moves with a principle of graduality the evolution is progressive it is in terms of time time is the cosmic manager you have to allow time you have to wait for the right moment for everything there was a right time there was a right place and a right way to do it and that was called the shastra shastra was to know everything was fine in creation you have a wrestling match where you are going to have uh, kill or get killed do it in the wwf ring 
It's okay, you are being paid money for this, that's the place. But if you do it on the street, you are a ruffian. So everything has its time and place and rhythm. That's what becomes the Shastra. And this Shastra is within us for everything. You want to shoot an arrow or in today's context you want to shoot a gun. This is the Shastra. This is the right way of doing it. This is the right method, right procedure. When first time I fired a gun during the training, I mean military training. So you have to fire. What a recoil. I literally felt pain. So he told me, this is not the way, doctor. Achche se lagao. Firmly, I put it lightly, I thought it's a style, you put it here. And the recoil made me aware, this is not the way to do it. So for everything there is a Shastra. There is a Shastra behind each branch of science and they were and arts and philosophy. So there were 64 kinds of Shastras, which once upon a time existed in India for everything. So this is how, what I meant, it's a vast cathedral and behind all of it was the one reality who is transcendent, supreme. It transcends everything. It transcends all conceptions. So it is neti neti. It transcends all belief systems. So it is neti neti. But it is also immanent in everything. So it is iti iti. Everything is God. At the same time, God is beyond everything. So it, this conception of reality that it is transcendent, at the same time immanent. And also it is cosmic. These were the three levels at which Indian thought saw that one reality. Imminent, it is in everything. Cosmic, it surrounds everything. And transcendent, it is beyond the individual and the cosmos. And any conception we may have of him will be at best a scaffolding. It's okay because you have to move further. But if you think that that conception is the divine, then you are making a mistake. And finally, they gave a path to realize this triple divine, if I may use the word. That is yoga. So this was one of the greatest gifts of India. That no, no, don't take it as a belief system. You don't have to believe in God. You have to have faith, which is different. Belief is a mental thing. Yes, I, I believe God exists. Faith means there is the divine and I can arrive. I can become one because he is the source. This is one of the greatest truths that I can become one with the source, one with the creator. And this is how the purpose of life was seen as ultimately becoming one with the divine and manifesting him or it or her, call it whatever, <laughs> or that in life and mind and body and speech and feelings and will, impulsions and in the very body itself. I think I'll stop here. Um, if there are some questions, I'll be happy. I think I've gone, exceeded the uh, limit, but, well, you can't compress the foundations in. I have not touched upon the literature, not the creative genius, because as I said, the time is very short, on Ramayana, Mahavarata, each of these Kalidas works, and this, the language, Sanskrit, its beauty, but that's entering into all the details. Yes, please. Thanks for allowing us to have a long time to discuss your sharing. You said that uh, God's our cosmic manager. In that case, we are cosmic consumers. <laughs> My question is: You know, when we were reading Mother, we often read Mother at the foundation of this. And when I came back, um, I said I have a preference to read the Supramanya Mahasaya. 
I felt like maybe I'm thinking that this all other four aspects of mothers are good, but we need to also come with mother. So if I bypass the thoughts, you said that we have the access to the supreme. Okay, this is a very good question. But first let me say, it's very unfortunate that we have become cosmic consumers. I like that term and <laughs> quite original. But that's very unfortunate because even animals are not cosmic consumers. Because they also do some good to earth, knowingly, unknowingly. Look at the way flowers pollinate and animals, even, you know, especially a cow. Everything of the cow helps this world. So, and many animals, all of them have their own role to play in the vast cosmic chain. But human beings, yes, have become like cosmic consumers. But that is not our truth. Uh, Shurabindu says it's even there in the Vedas. Man is a god. But he has fallen from that status. And why? Because he has to learn the lesson that comes through fall. The lesson of humility which is the first requirement to become one with the Supreme. There is a beautiful story in uh, one of the Upanishads, uh, I forget the name, when you know, uh, all the animals go to Brahma, the creator, and say, what is this? Uh, you have made man as the topmost, but he has neither the swiftness of the deer, nor the strength of the uh, tiger, nor the uh, elegance of the lion <laughs> and you know uh, what is this fellow you have made him the topmost fellow in the food chain he is only creating chaos he said no 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 there is something in man because of which I have made him the top so animals say what is it they say because he has buddhi the capacity to reflect and change himself this is something given to man buddhi the discerning intellect Otherwise, intelligence is there in, in, in every species, which is required for its own uh, looking after. So, man can consciously grow. So, they um, jaw drop and they start going. Then one of them says, wait, 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 I have one more question to ask him. So, they go back. So, Brahma says, what now? So, he says, what if man does not use it? So, he says, in that case, he is worse than an animal. <laughs> but if he uses it rightly, then he can become greater than the gods. So you see, when we bypass the gods, as is there, there even in the Upanishad, you will see that they bypass the gods. They even bypass, they say that the, um, you know, Mundak Upanishad says that the, the three Vedas, for instance, are uh, the subject of inferior knowledge. Of course, they are referring to ritualistic understanding of the Vedas, not the essence of the Vedas. Uh, who is the real object of knowledge, higher knowledge says that uh, Purusha in the golden sheath. So at every time they have spoken about direct contact with the Supreme. Even the Gita speaks about that. It says that you know if you seek the heavens and even if you pray to the gods, ultimately it will come to me and I will grant. But you can directly have access to me. This there, both roots were open to Indian gods, uh, to Indian thought. So to an extent the gods understand that these fellows have been given that access pass through which you can directly enter Auroville and the person at the gate will not ask you. He knows you. But if I come, they, have, they will stop my vehicle and ask me. So he is like the cosmic god. He is doing his function. He is not doing something wrong. It happened, no? Last time when I was coming for a talk in Savitri Bhavan. So I kept telling him, see... Uh, Madam has invited me. She, ultimately, I called up Ramna Ranji. Ramna is trying to tell, please let him come. No, sir, we have not done, we don't have any information. <laughs> so, but he's doing his job. You can't blame him for it. So, you see, ultimately, he will let you go. That's what we see in the Vedas, the colloquy between Indra and Agastya. 
Ragas says, please let me go. You have helped me reach here. Why aren't you letting me go? So Indra says, no, I'll send you all the uh, this and that and lures. So they have their role to play and the mother says, three levels you are tested. One is uh, forces of nature, cosmic nature. Then there are the adverse and the hostile forces which are the dark uh, worlds. And then there are spiritual forces which lure us into different bypass, temporary gifts, some siddhis and you know some higher plane. So, well, they try to do their job. But they do recognize, that is the difference between the gods and the titans. Titans don't recognize the supreme divine. So, they will give a fight. If when we go sheltered with the mother, as you said, supreme mahashakti, they will not let you grow go just like that. But the victory will be of the divine mother. We have to allow ourselves to be held in our hands. Not pop into the titan's lap or say, oh, you are so ferocious. When he appears so ferocious, look back and say, I am with the divine mother, what is there? She will win the victory, but it will be a battle. But when the gods see that we are being carried by the divine mother, they will say, okay, Tata, okay, fine, it's fine. <laughs> I do that every time I cross the Ganpati temple in uh, near the ashram, I say, I, <laughs> good, they are like our friends because they are helping this creation. So that's how one has to look at them. If you And that's why the mother had worked on the gods. That they too must understand that this is a new thing which is being done. And they must collaborate. So that's a whole history of the ashram where she called the gods, made Durga surrender and even you know asked all of them, will you collaborate in this new process? And uh, Shiva said, I'll break the ego of people because I am good at that. And <laughs> mothers started feeling her body is dissolving. All the cells are scattering and she went to Shirobindo. Uh, what is happening, this funny feeling? So Shirobindo says, not now. And the whole action stopped. Can you imagine the power of Shirobindo's word? Shiva's action was stalled. She says, after 40 years this happened because I was, that time it would have been premature. And then she says, but Shiva had granted <laughs> what I had asked for. But Krishna... He accepted to fuse with the human body. Other gods said, we will help. So Ganesha brought money. But later on, after 10 years, he couldn't get more money. So Mother asked, what happened to your promise? He said, my, you know, only Indians, they listen to me. <laughs> so, I try to poke them in their pockets. They don't respond. What can I do? <laughs> but Indians, they are, you know, we understand giving money for... Uh, anything which is spiritual. Outside, very difficult. They give for this foundation which is trying to expand the empire of the mind. So, this was the problem. All the gods tried to help. So, now they know, even nature knows that there is a new creation. So, when we take shelter in our arms, the titans, those who are not dissolved, two of them are dissolved, third is also dissolved. The dissolved means agreed to convert. And the fourth, I believe that... Uh, uh, actually, he said that I'll give a tough fight, but I'll surrender. I know that ultimately. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so now they will, but particularly falsehood, because it's the last one. It will try every which way, but shelter in her arms and one is safe. But the gods, they are nice guys. You know, they are right on very friendly terms. Actually, they are very friendly. And when they see that you are genuine, and you are sheltered by the Divine Mother, they too don't. If, if anything, they will help you. You are going on an errand, they will give something that they have to give. Like in Savitri, it is described in heavens of the ideal. So, <laughs> Arshapati, when he reaches there, there are all these gods. 
the radiant children of paradise. So, uh, eternity, sorry, not paradise. So, what they do is they offer him an insignia and a, and a flower as a symbol that now, you know, we are friends. So, wherever there is a requirement, you can show that, you know, this God is also with me. So, better be careful. But Ashwapati doesn't stop there and goes further. But for us, it's very simple that we belong to her, Ma. All of them bow down before the Supreme Ma Shakti, Adi Shakti. They know she is their origin. The Asuras do not know. And they are the fellows to be washed over. You should not worry about the gods. Huh? Ah, no, no, I, I have all the time I have taken off from, but I think, I don't know whether people have time or not. I am fine. You, you, you were talking about that Guru and uh, Sidan story. Yes. Asking uh, who is Brahma. Uh, the reality which is being, yes, yes. So, all the surface and Buddhi, uh, no, Mana, and then uh, it goes. and then Ananda. Ah, finally, you know, it comes to Ananda. Ananda is Brahman. Yes. All of these are Brahman. But the ultimate is the Anandam Brahmati sitting behind you. No, okay, that story. Sorry. So the beauty is something very interesting. It doesn't deny. It says Annam Brahmati. He says, okay. But go further. Then he says Pranam Brahmati. Okay. He doesn't deny. So as I said, is this place Savitri Bhavan? Yes, it is. But Savitri Bhavan is not only this hall or all the halls. Savitri Bhavan is an idea. Now, is idea Savitri Bhavan? No. There is something still greater. So, when you go ultimately, and to tell you very frankly, it is also a very practical thing. How to know that you belong to a certain place? I use this simple test. Uh, whether it be a job, people go for aptitude, no? So, whether it's a job or whether... It's a place. Uh, so I say, do you feel joy? Equally in company. Do you feel joy? Now this joy, not a surface pleasure which lasts for two days. Deep inner joy is a sign. So if you are happy in a place in general, so you have touched something of the core. Ananda expressing itself through this particular space. It's everywhere, in every place. To each his own, you know, booty. Of course, that joy is not ananda, but it's an indicator. Similarly, in an activity, because ultimately the origin is that. Why do we do things? We do it because there is ultimately that ananda that emerges from inside, which no amount of money can compensate. I may be working in a multinational firm and getting a lot of money, but if I am not happy, would I do it for long? We, I won't. So, the, of course, again, once again, happiness is not ananda. But at least in human frame, it is the little indicator of ananda. Yeah, my question is trying to answer the first question. Uh, is that uh, everything is divine. Like what the others are divine. And whether the essential are not recognized or not, so they are there. And in this yoga transformation, my question is what is their role? Okay, very good. So I actually I was going to just continue, and uh, since uh, Bhaskar Bhai just did probably prompted by Ananda. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> so so forms are also Brahman. Brahman has become the form. 
The purpose of form is to become an instrument of the formless. So the two go together. Formless seeks forms to express itself. See, a mother feels love in her heart. But when she cooks a meal for the child, this love is multiplied. It changes into bliss. Because she feels that love. But when she makes it, when she takes care of the child, that love becomes expressed. So, that's, then there can be distorted expressions also of the same truth. So, form. This is a form, an act. No, when you put, form is not just physical form. It's, it, or when you write a little note. These are forms. So, all this universe, forms are there to express that reality which is formless. That's why Kabir says, Saat samand ki masi karo, lekhani sabban rai, dharti to kagat karo, harikund likhana jai. He says that if you make ink out of the seven oceans and uh, uh, all the trees into a pen and this entire earth as a paper, you can't write the all the infinite qualities of Hari, the indwelling universal. You can't write it. because But they are meant to express. Each aspect of each form is a thought of God. As I said, when you look at the mountains, so that's how we, we, that's how we saw these things, that earth forms with a divine document. When you look at a river, each river has, why Ganga is so sacred, and then Yamuna with its chapal chal, and Saraswati which is hidden behind, within each of them. So in every river there is a Godhead, in the mountains there is a Godhead, in the forest. So everything, if you look at it that way, forms, they express something of this divine reality. Now that's what is the utility of form, whether it be a physical form or whether it be a mental, by mental form I mean institution. Institution are meant to express the divine reality. They are not meant to express, at least that's what they are meant to be. And for instance, Auroville, it's meant to express that reality which has been of the future of that mother and Shurabindra have brought forth. It's not a mental intellectual institution. There are many mental intellectual institutions. But then intellectual mental activities are not denied because they too are Brahman. But they must become ways and means to express that deeper reality. But they can equally become ways and means to block the manifestation of that deeper reality. That's when dharma and adharma come into play. So all the forms, even gesture and posture. So that's why dharma had these three layers. We spoke of the two, the base and the inner. But these are the most external aspects of dharma. For instance, we say namaste. We don't say hi. Nothing wrong with hi. But hi when we do this way, then next is bye. But when we do namaste, it's I bow to the divine presence in you. We all know that. When somebody dies, we don't say dead person. So we do namaste to Shav. Why? Because it held Shiva inside. And it is taking time for it. So we do pranam to the dead body. Sounds very strange. Because dead body is dead body. What is there to do namaste, scientifically speaking? So for us, everything is imminent with that. And therefore, all the outer activities were built around this understanding. You must have seen when, you know, there is an... Uh, Indian show, many Indian shows unfortunately have become um, a parody of the American show. One of them is Indian Idol. And then you have the American Idol. Now what happens when Indian dancer goes to stage? Or an Indian singer? Some of them. The, you will see, especially dancers, they touch the stage and do pranam. Why do they do it? This is the dharma which is inbuilt. It's a gesture, most outward gesture. 
it's an understanding that this uh, dharti is going to now bear the dance that I am going to undertake. So it's a living reality. And I seek its support to do that. So you treat things as a living reality. Everything is a living reality. It's not something which is dead. For the Indian conception, there is nothing like dead. Dead is what? That which is in ignorance. It's an inner state. But forms, just because it has a form, it is not dead. So there are many forms which live in the realm of ignorance, which is called as mrityu. Mrityu lok, marty lok. And one who escapes the snare of ignorance becomes amrattva, amartya or amrattva. So that's how we looked at it. Not animate and inanimate. Because everything is animated with the divine presence. That's why you can pick up a stone and worship it and realize the divine from it. So forms are meant to be instrument of the divine reality and they should be treated as such. It's a great importance because all this world is a manifestation. You can't manifest anything without forms. He is formless. The divine is a being but formless. Being in the sense that he is conscious of himself. He is a being but he needs forms to express. Otherwise there would be no world. So every form, whether institution, which is a form, institution could be marriage, institution could be a school, institution could be, should express this deeper reality or Outer gestures, postures should. Ex- so when you meet a, the guru, we touch, bow down to the feet. Mother was asked, "Why do we bow to the feet?" She said, "Because the feet is through which the power goes out. And if you see, it is so logical. You receive from above, and as that shakti comes down through the feet, it goes. So when you bow down to the feet of the master, you receive that power, blessing." Not everybody is supposed to bless anyone and everyone. Blessing. So, you are allowing this power to be something of yours to be shared by those who are doing pranam to you. So, all this is, was inbuilt. Every form before eating to remember the divine that may this food build in me uh, strength and energy to do the right and be governed by the light. These Many, many forms. Every form was a means to express. Marriage around the fire, seven times. Means on all the planes, we unite. But not around ego, not around the life of mutual satisfaction, desire or pleasure. But around the common aspiration. That's what marriage is about. That we'll keep the aspiration in the center. Not that, okay, we have got married, let's go to now Hong Kong. And you know, our US earn a lot of money, build a big place. That, that was never an ideal of marriage. Okay. Yes, please. So, uh, I love that you spoke about when you gave two examples of when Ram went to uh, Krishna and then to Lanka and then he established an extension of Dharma. And then we also see what happened in Kurukshetra. Although on the surface it looks like a lot of things yeah. With the people level, it's completely nothing else. So, um, my thing is that if humans are uh, supposed to be potentially divine, and we look around, it seems that today whatever human being touches is from a, from a place of exploitation. You know, can get something to exploit. So, is it that the buddhi element 
Yes. So beautiful question. So we'll touch it on three levels. Uh, first, about since we started with Rama and Krishna, so Kurukshetra, Hinsa. Now, Hinsa and Ahinsa are inner states. That's how we see in the Gita that Sri Krishna speaks of Ahinsa, Daya, all this as divine quality, Devi Sampada. So you see, um, let's take an example. When somebody is trying to uh, or doing something which is very consciously evil and you hold the hand, you do it with a courage, a strength, a force. But when you want to harm somebody, that's where Hinsa comes in. Hinsa is where you want to harm for your own personal gratification. So it is the same act. But it becomes hinsa or ahinsa depending on the state of consciousness. That's about hinsa, hinsa. It's important because many people, you know, uh, misuse this. So, when your inner being is seething with anger, that's why Shubhindu discarded this entire idea of Gandhi and ahinsa. Uh, true ahinsa is Buddha's. So, you know, when you are seething with anger but outwardly you are saying, no, I'll, st- I'll take the lathi on me and stand. This is dangerous because you will release soul forces which are very devastating in nature. So anyway, that's one part of the subject. The second is that when you see people exploiting and why they are doing it, well, they are doing it, one, because, as you rightly said, buddhi is the first thing to be extricated from this complex human nature. Not soul comes for those who are doing yoga. But buddhi and Sri Krishna, that's how he starts. And Sri also in the yoga of self-perfection, he starts with that. That the first thing, because it's the most easy, and buddhi to be extricated, it is right now involved in the mind and it is at the mercy of the mind and the vital. And Sri Krishna gives a beautiful method. He says, in most human beings, this buddhi is bahushakana. So it is driven by the hundred-tongued desire. I want this so people use buddhi. That's why it is called durbuddhi. How I will get it? It doesn't matter. Whatever be the means, I must get that. So this is called bahushakana buddhi. The other is Vyavasaitmak, not Vyavasai that way, but a buddhi which is focused inward and upward. So there are two movements of buddhi. One is outward and downward, which is where the exploitation, misuse comes in, where man becomes worse than an animal. Because animals never do that. They live for their needs. Uh, Whereas if he turns it inward in pursuit of a deeper law, he doesn't act, a man with buddhi doesn't act impulsively. He wants to go within and seek a greater law or higher. What is the origin of this creation, this universe, this seeking? Then the buddhi turns upward and inward and it becomes illumined with a greater consciousness. Then of course comes the soul and the self. But buddhi is misused because it's the newborn faculty. It's not there in human beings. Human beings, uh, in, in animals, it, you, animals have a mind. They have an intelligence. But buddhi is not there. It is uniquely human, but still, like all new things, right now it it is at the mercy of the animal nature in us. So, first step is to extricate the buddhi and it should be something which should be... But the way to do it is not... Buddhi doesn't develop through books and all this. Buddhi is by turning it inward and upward. That's all. And for everything, for instance, children, when they do something... Uh, how to train the buddhi is to make them conscious why they are doing what they are doing and for grown-ups also why we are doing whatever we are doing yes. okay
I mean, I'm okay, but I think. Yeah. Recently, I came across what your people said in the Dr. speech. I ask only for strength to uplift this nation. I ask only to be allowed to live and work for these people whom I love and whom I pray that I may work my life. This really inspired me recently. I was given a job to, or a project to help uh, people to do farming, and I have around 10 people who are working with me from morning and we are learning how to farm. My question is the Indians, is it in conflict with the Aurobindians? Because I'm an Aurobindian, primarily. I'm coming to but discovering my Indianness is in any way it's going to hinder or it's going to help. No, the, I mean, I always say this about Ashram, Auroville. So, as I said, Savitri Bhavan is in a larger setting of Auroville. So, Auroville exists in the larger setting of India. See, so India has this base of Sanatana Dharma. That's why today we are having the festival of Auroville. And I do believe that if we go through Shirobindo and the mother's writings, and particularly Shirobindo, the entire Sanatana Dharma is the base when we see his document about the four verb mission that he has come to do. Shri Krishna gave him the, you know, Nirukta, and one of them is this, to restate the truths of the Sanatana Dharma in a new way. So, India by India, I mean the Sanatana Dharma. And obviously, when we are living in, Shirobindo himself spoke about the law of the land. Now, I am touching from that angle also. So, being an Auroville doesn't, uh, uh, I mean, I am talking of if I am not only Indian or not Indian by passport, but I am operating within the setting of India. I can't drive uh, on the road on the right hand and say, well, that's how I drive in my country. Isn't it so? I have to respect the law of the land. So, there is something called, the, I may not agree with it. I may strive to change it. I may say, this is not done and there are ways and means to address it. But I can't see, this is where the problem comes. Like today we have this Khalistani movement. Yeah, we are separatists, we want to go our own way. That's not how any group of humanity will evolve. Why? Because then the next step will be tribes. Then the next step will be white tribes. There would be small little ghettos of people who will fight with others. Whereas the world must move forward. So nation's soul is a part of the Divine blessing. Shabindu speaks about the three strides of Vishnu. First is family. Second is nation. Third is the world unity. So the national context is important. And I, I think it's, it's important to remember. So Auroville is an inner truth. And why only India? One day the whole world should become Auroville in its true sense. Not by becoming a member of uh, AVI International or Shabindu. I mean it applies to everything. By institutionalizing, you can't do these things. It is by the living the spirit. And that spirit, there are many Indians who are not Indians. The mother said that, you know, India has to be saved from Indians. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am equally vocal about all these things. But the spirit that gave birth to Auroville, if you live it wherever you are, then you are living in an inner Auroville. Like one mother said, the whole world should become an ashram of uh, the Lord. Does it mean that we start converting people into the into, uh, thought of Sri Aurobindo? No, it doesn't mean that. Because there is something to be received when we are ready. 
But the essence of that thought, ultimately when we go back, we'll discover Sanatan Dharma. That's what Shubhindu says. When India rises and expands, it means Sanatan Dharma rises and expands. So this always has to be kept in the background. That well, the Sanatan Dharma, uh, in the true sense, I'm not talking of its externalities which change, forms change, institutions change. We can't have Gurukul with children coming uh, shaved heads and choti, <laughs> sporting and choti, putting tripun, certainly not. But the sense that it's not just a school, but a kul, I belong to the Guru, it's something very important. And I suppose that's the spirit in which all these things develop.